Science Friday. I'm Sophie Bushwick. I'm technology editor at Scientific American, and today I'm excited to bring some science to your ears. And I'm sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis. Together we're filling in for Ira Flato. Later in the hour, the science and history of our long existence with chickens and the science behind climate activism and what we can learn from studying protests. But first, baby poop. In a new study, researchers picked through the dirty diapers of more than 600 infants. And those stinky diapers were a goldmine of information. They revealed just how germy the guts of babies are, which could be key in understanding chronic diseases. Here to chat with me about this germ-laden story and other science news of the week is Catherine Wu, staff writer at The Atlantic. She's joining me from Boston, Massachusetts. Katie, welcome back to Science Friday. Always good to be here. So Katie, what exactly did this diaper study find? (laughs) So as you mentioned, there is a lot of stuff in diapers and a lot of it is stuff we cannot see or even necessarily smell. Uh, What these researchers were after was a better understanding of the different microbes that exist in babies' guts. So they looked at 10,000 new kinds of viruses. And I realize how alarming that might sound at first, but the vast majority of these viruses actually pose no threat at all to us. They are actually incapable of infecting human cells because they are bacteriophages, which is a word that literally means bacteria eaters. They infect bacterial cells. So really the only organisms that have to worry about them are the gut microbes that might be inherited right alongside them. So thousands of viruses in babies' guts. I mean, I think of babies as like pretty fresh and clean, I guess, microbially. I mean, how does a baby end up with all of these viruses? Right. So the big picture here is that these viruses are likely being inherited right alongside the bacteria that are colonizing these babies' guts. And a lot of it is probably coming directly from their moms. You know, when we all develop in utero, we are thought to be more or less completely sterile. But then as we, you know, egress out into the world, either through the vaginal tract or maybe a (laughs) C-section, we start to pick up microbes from, you know, our mom's skin, the vaginal tract, a little bit from maybe the butt area (laughs) Um, if you happen to come into contact with that region. And, you know, these microbes multiply. The big surprise was seeing all of these viruses, because even as I mentioned earlier, the big focus up until this point in the gut microbiome has been bacteria. Okay, enough of the potty talk, Katie. Let's go to space. There is a stunning new image of Mars and its moons that was snapped by the United Arab Emirates' orbiter named HOPE. Katie, what do the moons look like and, you know, what are they? Right. So Mars's two moons are Deimos and Phobos. And I will mention here that if you are picturing these lovely spherical orbs just floating, you know, elegantly around Mars, that's not exactly what we're (laughs) dealing with here. These moons kind of look like really weird, lumpy potatoes, like the kind you would want to mash and not served as a baked potato because they're not quite pretty enough. Oh, okay. (laughs) But these pictures were still pretty telling because they were not only just kind of, you know, taking images of the superficial surface, but they were able to shoot a bunch of different kinds of wavelengths at the moons and get a sense of their composition. You know, what is Deimos in particular made of? So Katie, how did these potato-like moons even end up there? Right. So the big finding here was that Deimos 
the composition of it is actually more similar to the composition of Mars than to that of, say, an asteroid. And I'll back up here and say, you know, the way that a planet acquires a moon, there's kind of two main ways that that can happen. Either the planet chucks a piece of itself off and it sort of gets trapped in orbit around its, I guess, parent substance, or the planet can steal an asteroid from elsewhere in space and just lock it into permanent orbit. Seeing that Deimos looks a lot more like, you know, the ingredients of Mars itself is a hint that it's probably not a captured asteroid and probably came from Mars. And that tells us a lot about, you know, the potential history here. You know, it's possible that something struck Mars in its very distant past and chunked a piece of it off and that became Deimos, but that's just one idea. That's going to have to be a discovery for another time. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is going to take us to the Twilight Zone. Uh, but we're not talking about the TV show. There is actually a real Twilight Zone in the ocean, and it is changing. So Katie, tell me, what is this Twilight Zone? And why is it important? Right, the Twilight Zone is kind of like the uncanny valley of the ocean. It is this zone that sits between about 650 and 3000 feet below the surface, basically between the surface zone and the super deep ocean. Not a lot of light gets there, but there is still a ton of life, you know, all sorts of fish, squid, jellies, and a lot of them are bioluminescent, just very cool uh, types of life down there. Mm. And so how is this Twilight Zone changing? So researchers basically published a study where they looked at past periods of warming in the past 66 million years. And they found that even though this Twilight Zone is super full right now, just absolutely teeming with diverse life, that wasn't always the case. And during periods where the globe got a lot warmer, the Twilight Zone got a lot emptier. And so the big concern is that as climate change continues to heat the planet and disrupt ocean ecosystems, one of the biggest, you know, losers in this game could be life in the Twilight Zone. What could happen climate-wise if those critters disappear? What they're sort of doing is acting as a conduit between this surface zone near the very top and the deep ocean. Uh, As you can imagine, the top of the ocean where all the light is is also where a ton of the food is. But as that stuff drifts down in the form of, you know, maybe dead carcasses or sort of pre-digested matter, stuff in the twilight zone can eat it and then, you know, maybe poop it back out. (laughs) And then it will drift even deeper down into the deep ocean. But when temperatures get really hot, basically a lot less stuff makes it into the middle twilight zone, which can starve the deep ocean. And that actually has big implications for climate change in general. It can accelerate it because the ocean is this huge sink for carbon. If we don't grab it and pull it deeper into the ocean, it stays in the air. And that's obviously not great for the rest of us. So we're going to stick in the ocean for our next story, but we are going to come up to the surface to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this giant island of trash that's floating a thousand miles from land. Uh, And there's a new study that finds that this trash island is teeming with all of this life. I mean, Katie, what did they find lurking in the trash? Big surprises all over the place. (laughs) I mean, you picture this giant swirl of plastic baking in the sun, super far from land. You don't expect a lot of things to be thriving there. But scientists went out there and sampled the bits of plastic floating, and they found all sorts of creatures, you know, anemones, different sorts of invertebrates, oysters, crustaceans. 
it's just hopping with life. Did a little critter, you know, hitch a ride on a soda bottle? You know, that is kind of the leading idea. I mean, how else would they get out there? All the creatures that I mentioned, the anemones, the oysters, these are typically coastal creatures, which is what makes this an especially big surprise. It's not like, you know, the plastic was out there and then something from the deep ocean was like, this seems like a great place to sunbathe. It really seems like organisms from the coast were hitching a ride out there and managing to survive you know, a thousand miles away from their natural habitat, which is absolutely wild. The cool thing is scientists think these creatures are so adaptable that they're able to find food and reproduce in a totally different habitat. Like they found sea anemones just noshing on sea snails, which wow. to put that in context, is about as weird as, you know, finding a pelican just eating desert ants, which is <laughs> not its normal fodder. That is very bizarre. And thankfully, we are staying in the ocean again for our next story, which is about elephant seals. And these elephant seals have a very impressive diving routine, we can say, right? Can you tell me a little bit about this, Katie? Yeah. So really, if you look at different types of seals, nothing can dive better than the elephant seal. They can dive up to a mile below the surface of the ocean. They can hold their breath for up to two hours. Like I, I can't even manage a millionth of that. It is just really impressive stuff. And they go on annual foraging trips that last seven months. That's seven months where they never touch down on land to rest. And throughout this entire time, they are diving deep to get squid and fish to constantly nourish themselves because this is so taxing. I mean, how do they do that and not, you know, die of exhaustion? <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive, right? That's been a question our researchers minds for a really long time. And scientists kept wondering, uh, when do they sleep and how <laughs> do they sleep? The answer is kind of wild. They actually manage just two hours of wow. daily sleep when they're on these seven-month foraging trips. I want to kind of get into the zone of an elephant seal. Take me on a dive, Katie. You know, I'm an <laughs> elephant seal. You know, what am I doing? Right. So basically the way that they are managing sleep during these series of really long dives is they will actually nod off while they're diving. So I'll describe to you what sort of happens on one of these sleep dives. So the elephant seal will dive in its normal active waking state. You know, it'll be descending down, swimming, swimming, swimming but then it'll just nod off. And keep in mind that the elephant seal is holding its breath during this entire stretch because it's not going to inhale underwater. That would be really bad. I just nods off to sleep. Eventually, it goes into such a deep state of sleep that it loses you know, control over its muscles. It's entering the stage of sleep called REM sleep where we have our most vivid dreams and can no longer uh, maintain muscle tone throughout our body. It will actually flip belly up and start to spiral downward in this corkscrew pattern because the ocean currents are sort of buffeting it back and forth. Eventually, some of these elephant seals will even reach the bottom of the ocean and just kind of snooze there for a couple minutes before they wake up wow. and are like, hey, I'm at the bottom of the ocean. I should probably swim up back to the surface and breathe. This whole cycle happens in less than 30 minutes. It's just wild. That is incredible. Obviously, the human sleep schedule is a little bit different than that. But can we learn anything about our own sleep habits from these seals? Right. So very, very, very different. But I think this is just another example in the animal world that is really showing humans that there's no single way to sleep for mammals. Elephant seals sleep 
very little on average, but maybe that tells us about how to really be efficient about restoring energy and rejuvenating our brain cells and just being really efficient about sleep. That doesn't make humans lazy in the same way that koalas that sleep 20 hours on average a day are you know, somehow really bad at sleep. It's just really different ways to tackle the same issue. We all need rest, but rest can be packaged in many different forms. Katie, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. An absolute delight. Thank you for ending on seals and bringing joy to my day. Anytime. Catherine Wu, staff writer at The Atlantic, joining me from Boston, Massachusetts. 